nation, whereas the nation depends for its progress and existence upon the work and services of women as well as men. Whereas the women of the nation have made clear their need for political rights and their desire to possess the parliamentary vote. The Women's Freedom League calls upon the government to remove the sex disability which deprives qualified women of their just right of voting in the parliamentary elections. The nation can never be free until the law recognises and establishes votes for women. The demand is just, the reform inevitable, delay is unwise and unjust. In the years leading up to the First World War, the long campaign to win political rights for women gained momentum and grew in militancy. I'm standing in a green park by the side of the Thames, next to the Palace of Westminster, called the Victoria Gardens. In front of me there's a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst, one of the leading figures in the campaign that came to be called the Suffragette Movement, and which eventually gained women the right to vote and to be members of Parliament. It's a fitting place to start a journey to explore how the story of the suffragettes can be told from events and records within the buildings of Parliament themselves. From here, I'm going to climb high up into the Victoria Tower to visit the Parliamentary Archives and to hear some of the stories of the struggle they have to tell. My name is Mary, Mary Tuckinagi. I'm an archivist here in the Parliamentary Archives. We're going to see some of our suffragette documents which are held here in the Tower, in particular the banner that was unfurled from the Ladies' Gallery in the House of Commons in 1908 and the police reports associated with that. We're up in the Victoria Tower and uh, we're looking at uh, some of the documents associated with the suffragettes. They were particularly interested in Parliament, of course, as a symbol of uh, democracy, the place where they were forbidden to vote, and so it was a great symbol for them that they needed to get into, they needed to storm the barricades, as it were. Well, I'm looking here at a banner and it's a proclamation, Women's Freedom League demands votes for women this session. What's the story about this? There were two suffragettes and their names were Helen Fox and Muriel Matters from the Women's Freedom League. They were in the Ladies' Gallery listening to the debates going on. Women were confined to the Ladies' Gallery if they wanted to come and hear debates in Parliament these days. When they designed it after the 1834 fire, it was kind of controversial whether there should be a Ladies' Gallery at all, whether women should be allowed to come and listen to debates. But they stuck a great big grill in front of it so that the male MPs wouldn't be distracted by women in the gallery above. So they should be seen and not heard, and, exactly. uh, or not even seen? <laughs> not even seen, not heard. They could see. They shouldn't have been heard. But um, they did make themselves heard on this day, on 20 28th of October 1908, they chained themselves to the grill and they unfurled this banner from the grill at the same time so it could be seen from the Chamber of the House of Commons below. And I think it would have made quite an impact when it was poked through the grill, um, even, though not, even though it wasn't that big. What the banner says is Women's Freedom League calls upon the government to remove the sex disability which deprives qualified women of their just right of voting in the parliamentary election and demands the immediate extension of the franchise to women on the same terms as it is or may be enjoyed by men. The police record of the time reports what happened in the ladies' gallery and it also records there were two other demonstrations going on simultaneously in Parliament that day by a number of other women in St Stephen's lobby at the same time and also by two men and uh, you can see their names in the police report here as well. Uh, their names were Thomas Bayard Simmons and Victor Storr and they were ejected for being disorderly in the strangers' gallery. I think this is quite interesting because um, people often don't realise there were male suffragettes. There were men who supported the cause of votes for women. They tend to get overlooked, I feel, in the story here. 
And it also reveals what a carefully planned and coordinated operation this was. Um, yes, I think that's absolutely true. Of course, it's only one example. We have quite a large file of police reports from about 1906 right up until the First World War of uh, all manner of similar such occasions where suffragettes caused disruption, chained themselves to parts of the building, were ejected. What became of these two ladies who took this uh, direct action? I don't know much about Helen Fox, but Muriel Matters was quite well known as a, as a suffragette. Uh, she was Australian. She did all sorts of other things. She scattered leaflets from a balloon, for example, uh, demanding votes for women. And did the police press charges in this case? Well, if you read the police report, it says um, they were ejected for their building in accordance with the instructions of the sergeant-at-arms, and then some of them were charged with offences committed outside after they were ejected from the house. So yes, some of them were arrested and would have gone to prison subsequently. We tend to think of the suffragette movement as being very active before the First World War, but what we're looking at now is uh, an artefact that reveals a, a longer history. I believe the first petition presented to Parliament asking for votes for women was actually way, way back in 1832, at the time of the Great Reform Act, when it was basically laughed out of the House. But uh, there were quite serious efforts made to get women the vote in the mid-19th century, and again in the late 19th century. The document that we're looking at here is a petition from 1884, which was around the time of the passage of the Third Reform Act, when a number of men would have been given the vote and uh, some women sent this petition to the House of Lords asking that women be included as well. This particular petition is from the mistresses of Dulwich High School. Dora Knight, yes, you Emily can... Collins, Absolutely. Bertha J. Taylor all from the high school for girls at Dulwich. These would have been a, a group of intelligent, educated, professional women with their own careers, possibly property-owning, certainly paying taxes, would have had no vote, no sort of state say at all in the running of the country. They felt strongly about this enough to send this petition to the House of Lords. Um, it didn't do any good, so women were not included in the 1884 franchise bill. Later on, women got impatient with these sort of peaceful methods like petitioning, and that's what led, of course, to the more violent actions of the suffragettes once we get into the 20th century. The suffragette movement took many forms, with groups adopting different tactics and degrees of militancy. The biggest was the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, founded by Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughters Christabel and Sylvia. Increasingly, the Parliament buildings themselves became the focus for protests and demonstrations. One of the most spectacular mass events coordinated by the suffragettes was the Rush on Parliament. Melanie Unwin, deputy curator at the Palace of Westminster, takes up the story. The rush on Parliament was another of these mass meetings that the WSPU were organising in late summer and autumn 1908. They produced lots of leaflets saying men and women help the suffragettes to rush the House of Commons on Tuesday the 13th of October at 7.30 and these leaflets were distributed in thousands and thousands and in fact on the evening of the rush over 100,000 people turned up in central Westminster to rush Parliament and they failed, the police cordon held fast. However, one woman did make it onto the floor of the House where they were debating the children's bill and shouted, leave off discussing the children's question and give votes to women first and was duly um, bodily taken out of the chamber but not arrested. The building was very central to the movement suffragettes there around at the time when newspapers are really using photography for the first time and so it's widely covered in the press they're attracting a lot of publicity a lot of what they do is specifically to attract publicity to their cause and if you look at the memorabilia that they produced they're very much looking for what we might today call a corporate identity 
We're looking at here a medal that was awarded by the Women's Social and Political Union to Emmeline Pankhurst, obviously a very well-known figure in suffragette history. Emmeline Pankhurst was accused and found guilty of inciting a rush on Parliament. And as you can see, this medal is tiny. The actual medal itself is only two centimetres across. And it looks, apart from that, like a very traditional medal. You can see at the top, the bar says Holloway, which is the prison in which she was locked up. So this looks like a traditional military... Absolutely. campaign medal that a soldier might get awarded, but smaller. It does. It looks exactly like that. Um, the ribbon it hangs from is in the suffragette colours of violet, white and green. The suffragettes um, had white for purity, green for hope and violet for dignity, but of course it also spells out give votes to women, GVW. The bar at the bottom of the medal gives the date, October 1908, and then on the actual medallion itself hanging from the ribbon, on one side we have Mrs Pankhurst written, and on the other side we have H24, and that's hospital block, floor 2, cell 4, which is actually where she was locked up. And this medal was given to her when she was released from jail in December. And it's one of the really early examples because the um, Women's Social and Political Union went on to give everybody who was locked up a medal every time they were locked up. So it became a very central part of their um, way of rewarding people and recognising their sacrifice. What kind of tactics were the suffragettes employing at this time to get attention? 1908 is a, a turning point really in suffragette history. Up until that point in the 19th century it's very much a campaign of lobbying in very traditional ways. By the early 20th century people like Emily and Pankhurst have really had enough of the traditional methods. They start to think of what we might count as more aggressive ways. Initially that's protests, it's mass marches, huge marches to prove that they do have a huge number of followers who do want the vote. 1908, they finish year having had a lot of rallies, having had a rush on Parliament, but actually not changing anybody's mind. It still isn't government policy and it still doesn't have a majority support in Parliament. And that's really when law-breaking starts, everything from breaking windows to arson. And I think we have to remember that these women, they come from all classes. Suffragettes are working class, middle class and upper class. But collectively they are respectable women and this is not something women are expected to do. If we th look at somebody like Marion Wallace Dunlop, who was an artist but a very active suffragette, she came to the building with a gentleman, she was left in St Stephen's and suddenly the PC on duty noticed her doing something with her cloak which was over her arm and he went rushing up to her and he found that she had a sort of 12 inch stamp pad in her hand which she was about to imprint some text onto the wall and he stopped her. Um, unfortunately she came back two days later and repeated the action and this time successfully the PC didn't notice what she was doing. He found that she'd stamped on the stonework in purple ink, of course a suffragette colour, an extract from the Bill of Rights and so her stamp said it is the right of subjects to petition the king and all commitments and prosecutions for such petitioning are illegal. There is a note in one of the reports that the purple ink, which was indelible of course, took two men over two hours to remove using pumice stone, soap and water. So the lady with the stamp. Absolutely, and I mean if you look at this picture of her you can see it's a fairly substantial stamp to be hiding underneath her clothing. So can you tell me some more stories about people whose objective is to get into the building and stay here and make a statement by being in this place at the right time? 
Perhaps one of the best known suffragettes is Emily Wilding Davidson, who had a short but um, intense history with the building. She joined up as a suffragette as quite a young woman, but she very quickly rose through the ranks of the Women's Social and Political Union, and she was quite successful at breaking into the building. Um, so in April 1910, she hid in a ventilator shaft overnight with the intention of breaking into the chamber and asking a question when the House was sitting. She broke three windows in the House of Lords. She went on to break windows in the Cannon Row Police Station. But perhaps her most notable overnight stay in Parliament was on census night in April 1911, when she locked herself in the cupboard in the crypt so that when the census form was filled out, she could say that she was resident in Parliament. So what does the form actually say? You've got it here. I have the form here, and you can see that it's been filled in, and it says, address, found hiding in the crypt of Westminster Hall, Westminster. That's her residence? That's her residence on census night. Uh, and what was the purpose of getting that entry into the census? Well, it means that she was in Parliament, so she was a woman in Parliament. What became of her? Well, she went on to protest here a lot and, of course, eventually she died under the King's Horse at the Derby. She was the first martyr, so to speak, of the suffragette movement. I think that's very true. She was certainly the first martyr. I'm Inspector Ron Tucker. I'm one of the police inspectors that work in the Palace of Westminster here. We're actually in the St Mary's Undercroft, which was the undercroft under the old St Mary's Chapel, which goes, dates back to Edward I's time. Down here was where uh, Emily Wilding Davison actually hid away on the night of the census on the 2nd of April 1911 and she actually stayed in the broom cupboard here overnight. And the broom cupboard still... The still broom cupboard, seen. you can still see it and there's a plaque on the back of the door so if I lead you through I'll show you through to it. Well you're right about the broom cupboard, it's... Uh... Yes, unfortunately, it's pretty cramped in here. And here is a, a, a small photograph of Emily who lost her life beneath the hooves of the King's Horse. Yes, correct, yes. And there's the ribbon with the three colours of the suffragette movement, and then underneath it, a plaque in loving memory of Emily Wilding Davison. In this broom cupboard, Emily Wilding Davison hid herself illegally during the night of the 1911 census. She was a brave suffragette campaigning for votes for women at a time when Parliament denied them that right. How did the plaque get here? Tony Benn, the uh, former MP, had it put there. Is this a place of pilgrimage then for people wanting to oh, commemorate the suffragettes? If you can bring people down here to show them that it is a place to, to see this plaque and to, to stand in the broom cupboard uh, uh, by themselves and read the plaque. It can't have been a very comfortable experience for her in here. How, how long was she in here? Uh, well, it was overnight. I'm not quite sure how long she was actually in from start to finish, but the suffragettes were very dedicated to their cause and they wouldn't have thought much of staying overnight in this place at all. I mean, when you think they went to prison and, and actually suffered the indignities of the hunger strike and then false feeding, this staying overnight would have been nothing to her. Well, they've got stronger stomachs than me. I think I'm going to escape the claustrophobia. <laughs> the broom cupboard. Let's go back to the crypt. <laughs> What other tactics did uh, the suffragettes employ within the precincts of Parliament? They just tried more and more violent methods as time went on. They were quite um, passive in 1906 when they first appeared in Parliament Square. And by 1912 they were smashing windows with a hammer. And they would stand on the sofas, the cities, in uh, central lobby and just yell votes for women and try, if they could, to force their way into the chamber. 
And how did your colleagues in the police force of 100 years ago deal with this? They must have been quite taken aback by this behaviour, especially from, from women. I think to start with, they were rather nonplussed, really, as to how to handle these middle-class women, grabbing hold of them and actually stopping them and pulling them down. They weren't used to that. And I don't think that the women themselves were expecting to be manhandled in quite the way they were. But by 1912, everyone was used to it. And there's an incident where um, four of them actually got into St Stephen's Hall and when the police turned their back, they chained themselves to three of the statues and then they chained a banner to the other statue. And, and during that incident, uh, the spurs on one of the statues, the Falkland statue, got damaged. This is a report by Chief Inspector Scantlebury, uh, dated the 27th of April 1909, titled Suffragettes. I beg to acquaint the Sergeant at Arms that at 4pm on the 27th, PC Boyce, on duty in the hall, saw one of the ladies throw something around the leg of Walpole's statue. He sprang forward when she snapped the handcuff on the chain. The other two doing likewise at the Selden and Falkland statues. One of the women slipped a chain with an advertisement around the leg of the Summers statue. WSPU, Votes for Women, meeting Albert Hall, Thursday next. She commenced to blow a whistle loudly. The clippers were at once obtained and the women liberated and taken to the police room, pending directions from the speaker. I beg to add that the clippers turned out most valuable as it was only the work of seven or eight minutes from the commencement to the end of the whole proceedings. It's signed uh, C. Scantlebury, Chief Inspector. In one of the court reports in the newspaper, there's an, another inspector said that their behaviour was disgraceful and some of the editorials in the newspaper at the time thought this is not the way for English women to behave. And what do you think of their behaviour? Well, I, I think it's like any other democracy, like the Hunt people that got into the chamber. It's tradition of the way we express feelings when Parliament appears not to be taking notice. And this is carrying on a tradition. And that's what democracy is all about. That's what this House of Parliament are all about. The outbreak of the First World War brought an abrupt halt to the activities of the suffragettes. Emmeline Pankhurst called upon her followers in the WSPU to support the war effort. By the end of the war, the world was a different place. Opposition to women's suffrage had evaporated. In 1918, women over 30 were granted the vote and were allowed to stand for Parliament. Ten years later, the franchise was extended to all women on the same terms as men. Judy Malibur is MP for Amber Valley. She's conscious of the debt our democracy owes to the suffragette movement and feels it's very important that their story should be told from within the precincts of the Parliament they struggled so hard to enter. This building in Parliament has so many places where you can see what the suffragettes did, from the place where somebody chained themselves to a statue, to the room where Emily Wilding Davison hid on the night of the census, to the idea that people were prepared to go on this big rush of Parliament and get themselves imprisoned. There's also a wonderful window which traces suffragette history. There's many places you can look at and get a sense of what people went through in order to extend their rights. The suffragettes crossed all political groups uh, and of course they were supported by many brave men as well, not just women. And I suppose the Pankhursts are the most famous. They represented many middle-class women who must have been extraordinary to have uh, undertaken what they did with their place in society, but also many working women uh, who would also have been in real danger about what was going to happen to their position in society and at work 
if they took direct action and were then imprisoned. It's an extraordinary period when people were very brave to come forward and campaign and argue and take amazing actions to win the right to vote and to have a voice. And personally, I don't know if I would have been brave enough to do that. I like to think I would have. Would I have gone out, chained myself to statues, thrown bricks, been prepared to be arrested, gone in prison, undertaken a hunger strike, been force-fed? I just don't know, but I'm very grateful to those people that have always been prepared to fight and argue for our rights. The Women's Freedom League calls upon the government to remove the sex disability which deprives qualified women of their just right of voting in the parliamentary elections. The nation can never be free until the law recognises and establishes votes for women. The demand is just, the reform inevitable, delay is unwise and unjust. Therefore, in the name of liberty and humanity, the Women's Freedom League claims the vote this session. I hope that people coming and looking round Parliament will look at those actions that were taken, look at the representations within Parliament and reassert the importance of themselves engaging in that political process and democratic process, particularly from the point of view of young girls maybe that otherwise might not vote, but young people generally. And we still, of course, only have less than a fifth of our members of Parliament are women. So there's a long way to go and we will carry on having to struggle, I think, to get our fair share of the wall space in the Houses of Parliament. And that's the, the legacy that we should have for those women that were so brave and the men that supported them at that time.